0: Well, hello, uh, CTSS. This is Steven Rowe. I'm an assistant professor in the uh, Russell H. Morgan Department of Radiology and Radiological Science at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And I work in both the division of body imaging and the division of nuclear medicine and molecular imaging. And in a couple of lectures, we're going to discuss some of the uh, reasons that one might recommend PET and uh, in terms of capabilities and limitations of PET what the body imager uh, might need to know. So I'd like to start out with a definition of molecular or functional imaging, and this is from the Society of Nuclear Medicine Molecular Imaging. And it states that molecular imaging is a type of medical imaging that provides detailed pictures of what is happening inside the body at the molecular and cellular level. What we need to carry out molecular imaging is we have to have some kind of a tracer, and this is most often a small molecule or an antibody with some kind of radionuclide label. And this allows us to be able to see that radio tracer with the right kind of scanner and therefore learn about where that radio tracer is and derive from that what it's telling us about uh, either uh, physiology or pathology within the body. And we can use different kinds of radio tracers to look at either metabolism, kind of nonspecific. Uh, functions going on in the body, or we can look at very specific ligand-receptor interactions. And both of those are useful things, and and we'd use different kinds of radio tracers for uh, for both and typical uh, PET scans. Most of the radionuclides that we use could be considered organic, atom like. These are things that uh, already exist in the body in different atomic forms, but we use radioactive forms of them in order to be able to see them with the PET scanner. Uh, there are also a class of radio metals, and I'll talk a little bit about one radio tracer that, that utilizes one of those radio metals, probably in, in the subsequent lecture and not in this initial one. In terms of radio tracers and clinical practice, far and away the most common one is F18-FDG. We use FDG for just about everything, and I would say most PET centers do 95 plus percent of their work with FDG. But there are a number of other agents, and and some of these uh, provide interesting insights into into different biological processes. And we'll touch on the amyloid agents. We'll talk about a couple of things for prostate cancer, FACBC and choline. Uh, We won't really talk about sodium fluoride PET, uh, but we will uh, finish up the the second lecture in the series with uh, a discussion about gallium dotate, which is one of the newer FDA-approved radio tracers in clinical practice. So, FDG is really the oncology workhorse, and as we'll see, it's actually useful for things outside of oncology, but, uh, but this really is the backbone of, of modern PET imaging, and we will spend a bit of time talking about how this is useful in different kinds of cancers. The mechanism of FDG is based around the idea that transporters on cells, glute transporters, will take up either glucose or FDG. Uh, They sort of mistake FDG for, for glucose. Uh, Once uh, glucose is inside the cell after being transported, uh, it can be phosphorylated and then can go on to a variety of fates, including the Krebs cycle. However, when FDG is phosphorylated, it's sort of stuck. It really can't be further metabolized, uh, and it's also now too polar to be able to get out of the cell. So over time, cells tend to uh, accumulate FDG in in its phosphorylated form. Uh, And as as the uh, FDG becomes more concentrated inside the cells, we're then able to find those concentrations of FDG with a PET scanner and identify where uh, cells, often malignant cells, are located. So this is just a list of the most common malignancies uh, as of 2017 and what I want to do is highlight a few of the most common ones and then discuss the role of PET in those malignancies and what might be useful to the body imager to know if a question comes up from a referring clinician, uh, if an uh, um, indeterminate finding shows up on a CT scan, uh, kind of how would PET be useful for, for working some of those things up. And the, the cancers that we're going to focus on are colon, lung. Breast, prostate, and lymphoma. So, uh, colon cancer is actually one of the more complicated places to start, but uh, uh, let's go ahead and, and begin there. So for most colon cancers, so those that are deemed clinically resectable, so nothing particularly suspicious on uh, system on uh, uh, staging imaging, uh, nothing's particularly suspicious clinically, generally you would not do PET CT scan in that case. However, the one exception to that is that if on, say, a diagnostic contrast enhanced CT scan, there's an equivocal finding, uh, PET scan can be a very good way to work up that equivocal finding and try to get a more definitive answer. I would say that if the equivocal finding is in the liver, liver MRI is going to be a better way to go than uh, PET-CT. But for just about every other uh, equivocal finding, uh, PET really is a good way to, to try to Get a more definitive answer. So if you do find yourself with an equivocal finding uh, when you are reading a contrast-enhanced CT in a colon cancer patient for initial staging, uh, don't be shy about recommending a PET. It, it really may help your clinician kind of uh, be able to pick the right work up and, and get an answer. For patients that do have what appears to be metastatic disease, If it's fairly widely metastatic, there may not be a great role for PET in that situation. That's pretty well staged by uh, our typical diagnostic modalities like CT. However, if they might have curable metastatic disease, and this is most often a single site of metastasis in the liver, Uh, then PET-CT is useful because PET-CT is going to uh, have a higher sensitivity for additional sites of disease, either in the liver or outside, and maybe the the make or break decision point for whether uh, focal therapy is going to happen to that uh, suspected single site of disease in the liver. So an oligometastatic Uh, M1 patients, and that could be maybe up to about three to five lesions, although I think five starts to push it a little bit, Uh, and really, uh, ideally, it would be an isolated, solitary site of disease. Patients with either liver or lung involvement, about a quarter of the patients that would be thought to have curable, either single or very few sites of disease, actually have more extensive disease identified on, on FDG PET. So. Uh, You save about a quarter of patients uh, a futile uh, metastasis directed therapy uh, if you get them pet uh, in the upfront setting uh, if you otherwise suspect that they may have curable metastatic disease. Now, in the context of recurrent colon cancer. I think there's a couple of places that that PET can play a reasonable role. So, in one of those ways is that when you have uh, a patient that's being followed by by, uh, serum CEA levels, and those CEA levels are increasing, and the clinician suspects that there is a recurrence of their colon cancer, but they can't find it, so they've they've done a colonoscopy if there's a remnant colon. Uh, they've done a chest, abdomen, and pelvis diagnostic CT, and there's no evidence of, of the site of disease recurrence. Uh, that's a good time to get a pet. A pet in that situation may show you something that, that simply looks normal on, on CT. Um, It may uh, elucidate what the the nature of an indeterminate finding on CT is. So uh, I think PET's a a very useful problem-solving tool in those recurrent patients with serial CEA elevations, but that lack findings on other modalities. The other situation is if you have a metachronous, but uh, clinically suspected to be resectable metastatic lesion, so again, maybe a solitary lesion to the liver, but appearing after the patient's initial therapy for, for their primary colon cancer, then PET-CT again provides you that sort of additional sensitivity that you need to figure out if they really do have just a solitary site of disease or if they have more extensive disease and, and that uh, any metastasis directed therapy would be futile. So a couple of good indications for, for PET in the recurrent colon cancer setting. So I'd like to move on now to lung cancer, and we'll start with solitary pulmonary nodules. So this is probably the most common indication for a pet across the country, is to characterize a solitary pulmonary nodule. And we generally do a whole body pet for these patients, so we don't just image the chest, we'll, we'll image the, the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And in doing so, uh, we do characterize the, the actual finding, the solitary pulmonary nodule, but we approach it almost as if we're assuming this is cancer and we're also going to do sort of systemic staging for a presumed uh, primary lung cancer. We may also at times find that the solitary pulmonary nodule is uh, in fact a metastatic lesion and we may identify the primary tumor as well. Uh, generally, the, we, we're looking for nodules that are about 8 millimeters or larger in size, and we want them to be solid nodules. Nodules below that size uh, may be difficult to characterize on, on PET. Uh, they may, uh, despite having a fair bit of uptake in them, they may just not, uh, uh, because of the mo- motion of the lungs uh, and other factors, that, that we may not perceive that they have activity in them. And then for ground glass or subsolid nodules, uh, we really don't want to evaluate those with PET. Those are uh, best uh, just followed by CT. Uh, they generally, when you start to get into ground glass nodules, they don't have an invasive component and they don't take up much FDG. So we really can't add much to the characterization of those. Uh, and this is all in uh, the recently updated, as of 2017, Fleischner Society Guidelines. So you'll note that uh above eight millimeters, uh, PET CT is one of the possible methods by which you might work these up. And uh, you can there are other uh, there are other ways that you might work these up, short-term CT or potentially straight to biopsy. Uh, but generally PET CT is going to be the best way to uh, best way to characterize these lesions. What you'll also notice is that in the new Fleischner criteria, there is, in fact, no uh, mention of ground glass or subsolid or partially solid nodules. So, again, these are really the domain of diagnostic CT uh, and are not uh, not the domain of, of PET scans. So, uh, we would absolutely want to characterize uh, this solid nodule on the left, but uh, on the, the right-hand side of the screen, this uh, ground glass nodule would uh, would not be appropriate for a recommendation for PET. But once lung cancer is uh, definitively identified, uh, what the NCCN guidelines say is that basically everything goes through PET. So all roads go through PET at that point, uh, regardless, of, uh, regardless of the suspected stage on other imaging modalities or clinically, uh, all patients should get systemic staging with uh, with PET scan. Even widely metastatic patients still benefit from, from a PET scan uh, in lung cancer. And the reasons for that, and I'm sorry, the, the chart here is a little bit blurry, but uh, this is from kind of a uh, getting to be a little bit older paper, but I think still a very salient one that basically found that uh, PET scan in the staging of mediastinal lymph nodes in lung cancer uh, has higher sensitivity, higher specificity, higher accuracy, higher positive predictive value and higher negative predictive value than CT. So it really kind of runs runs the board of, of things that you would care about uh, and, uh, and really provides Uh, a lot of staging information in in patients with lung cancer. So I would say that uh, uh, one thing to be aware of, however, is that generally after a patient has been treated for lung cancer, and hopefully they've been treated with curative intent and hopefully even achieved a cure, we generally don't use uh, FDG PET for Uh, routine surveillance. So those patients are best uh, served by surveillance with CT, lower radiation, less cost. However, when something does come up on CT scan, uh, they do need then at that point systemic restaging with PET to assure that the finding on CT scan, uh, you can both characterize it with PET and then you can also assure that there's not uh, more disease than you suspect if they truly are recurrent. Now, uh, moving on to breast cancer. Breast cancer is another uh, somewhat somewhat complicated sort of answer as to exactly what the role of of PET is in in breast cancer. So in the NCCN guidelines, unfortunately, don't provide us a tremendously clear answer on this. So uh, for patients with uh, locally advanced disease that has both uh, T3, so a large primary tumor and N1 disease with uh, disease in the axilla, uh, those patients are best served by systemic staging with PET. the NCCN guidelines don't necessarily make that a definitive recommendation, but it really should be a definitive recommendation. Almost a quarter of those patients will be upstaged uh, on PET from diagnostic chest, abdomen, and pelvis CT. So that's really too many to uh, allow, uh, allow to slip through. So I think that uh, the patients with T3N1 disease should absolutely get, uh, get systemic staging with PET. Uh, in patients with either T3 or N1 disease, but not both, uh, then uh, the NCCN guidelines really don't recommend uh, that, uh, that those patients undergo PET. Uh, but if there is a high suspicion uh, on the part of the clinicians, if the clinicians are, are interested in PET, uh, oftentimes it, it is still obtainable for those patients. And I think it's appropriate in many of those patients. Uh, certainly for clinically localized disease, so disease without evidence of uh, involvement of the ax- axillary lymph nodes, uh, I think everyone has an agreement that there's no role for PET CT in those patients. So there are a few other indications for the use of PET-CT in in breast cancer, and I'll just touch on on a couple of those. So inflammatory breast cancer often is staged with PET-CT, an aggressive type of disease, uh, often with systemic involvement at the time of presentation. Uh, restaging in recurrent disease uh, recommendation would, would be to, to proceed with, with PET, even if it's believed to be a local recurrence, say a palpable abnormality at a site of prior resection, a patient still uh, benefits from systemic restaging and so PET is uh, appropriate in that scenario. And then uh, a sort of an evolving indication is the idea that in patients that ha- are getting neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy prior to undergoing a potential surgery, uh, they should get PET before and after the neoadjuvant. Adjuvant chemotherapy in order to evaluate the effectiveness of the chemotherapy, uh, and maybe even uh, be able to see if they've had a complete metabolic response to the chemotherapy uh, prior to going to uh, prior to going to surgical resection. And then lobular breast cancer is kind of a kind of an odd odd beast within uh, within the breast cancer world. Uh, it really is a difficult disease to see on many of our modalities. Uh, breast MRI has trouble seeing primary disease. Uh, oftentimes, uh, bone lesions are entirely marrow-based and will be completely occult on CT scan and bone scan. So uh, in patients with lobular cancer where there's some clinical suspicion uh, or if there are indeterminate findings um, on CT and in, in terms of bone lesions that aren't well, ident- well characterized, uh, FDG PET CT can can really provide some additional information, and I think there should be a relatively low threshold for for proceeding to PET in, in patients with lobular cancer. Uh, briefly, prostate cancer, so there's not a lot to say here. Uh, prostate cancer tends to be relatively indolent and has low glyco- glycolytic activity, so it really doesn't take up much FDG PET, and it's not going to be particularly useful in trying to characterize uh, indeterminate findings on, say, CT or bone scan. So uh, so PET really, uh, really is very, very limited in terms of its role in prostate cancer. I will say that uh, there are those who are relievers in using it for very advanced patients, those with metastatic castration-resistant disease. They often don't show a lot of changes even when they're responding to therapy on CT, and so sometimes it's best to image those patients with with PET in order to see kind of the changes in glycolytic activity because those very very advanced prostate cancers that have differentiated a bit will have more FDG uptake than than kind of run-of-the-mill prostate cancer. Uh, and here's an example from the literature where you can see that uh, this gentleman with widespread disease. Nothing really changes on his CT before and after chemotherapy, but his his lesions become a lot less glycolytically active on the before and after PET scans. So PET does have maybe some role, again, in very advanced prostate cancer, but overall fairly limited. And then lastly, uh, let's spend a couple minutes on lymphoma. So uh, lymphoma really is the standard for evaluating uh, Hodgkin's disease and most non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. There are a few exceptions that are listed here on the slide. I I won't go into all the the details of these, but these are generally things that we don't want to stage with PET. Uh, They're staged either clinically or uh, staged and followed with uh, diagnostic CT scan for the most part. And the reason that, uh, that PET really gained a foothold in lymphoma and then became the go-to modality for uh, for staging and following response to therapy in lymphoma is that with really tiny sites of disease, such as small uh, lymph nodes uh, in this example uh, and the top panels, uh, you can actually see focal FDG uptake that indicates that there is active disease there, yet those lymph nodes are too small to consider pathologically enlarged on CT. And vice versa, you can have very large residual masses after therapy uh, that are impossible to tell from active disease on uh, anatomic imaging. Uh, but when you add PET, you can see that there's no significant FDG uptake in those lesions. Uh, you can be reassured that that those are, uh, that those are treated lesions and not, not active lesions. Uh, timing of PET scans uh, varies a little bit place to place, uh, but for many lymphomas, uh, patients will get a pre-therapy PET scan. They'll then get a mid-therapy PET scan about two to three cycles uh, after starting chemotherapy. And then after ke- chemotherapy completion, uh, six cycles, some things are going to four cycles these days, uh, you would get a post-therapy scan. What you don't want to do with PET CT is any sort of routine surveillance after cure. And actually, you really don't even want to do routine surveillance with CT in these patients. Uh, you. Really really want to wait for their disease if it comes back to sort of declare itself, and they'll become symptomatic rapidly and necessitate imaging rapidly. So there's really no role for routine surveillance in lymphoma patients, uh, in most lymphoma patients. For therapy response, uh, there's something called the Lugano classification that's very widely used in in PET-CT, and you may see this in uh, reports from from uh, PET-CTs from your colleagues. And the Lugano classification is a five-point scale that uh, basically goes from uh, sort of no uptake, just background levels of uptake, all the way up through very intense uptake. And it indicates the the presence of uh, either a complete metabolic response, a partial metabolic response, or uh, a lack of response or even progression disease and so many uh, lymphoma oncologists will actually rely on this to sort of interpret the in the big picture what the PET scan is telling them about the status of the disease. Maybe that's a good place to stop. Uh, I think for the next lecture we'll talk a little bit more about FDG but in, in non-oncology applications and then we'll discuss some of the non-FDG av- uh, non-FDG radio tracers that are in current clinical practice for PET uh, and so we'll pick up uh, we'll pick up next time.